Hi, and welcome to the West Visalia Audio Podcast. Each message is designed to help you grow and inspire you to take action. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, and don't be shy to drop us a message if you have a question. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Well, it is 9.30, so that means it's time for us to get started, and it has been a year since I have taught a Bible class in this auditorium. That's kind of weird to think about. An entire year in which, I mean, I know that buildings aren't sacred or things like that, but I've gotten used to the last 15 years teaching Bible class in here. I mean, I know I don't do it every semester or quarter, but man, I kind of missed that. I haven't had a chance to walk through a book of the Bible with a live audience in over a year. Curtis and Nick and I were doing it through the book of Matthew, but that wasn't really live. We didn't have interaction with people there. We had interaction with each other, and um, that kind of got awkward at times. So it's, it's good to have real people come back again. But um, it's kind of different, too. Uh, it's weird how you get used to the, I don't know, the, the sheltered nature of, of recording on the Internet and standing in front of a, a camera. It was a, it, it worked for us. We were able to, you know, get through some different times using it, but um, I definitely like to read the audience because you can't do that when teaching before the camera. I mean, I can usually look out at the audience and if Carolyn is like dozing off and okay, I need to get louder, you know, that kind of, the first Sunday you're back, Carolyn, see that pick on you. But I mean, without that, or maybe, I don't know, maybe my joke wasn't funny and I think it was because I don't have Dawn laughing because she's usually the only one that ever laughs at my jokes anyway. So, but did you have a question? Yes. Walmart and church, that's a good life. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. There, yeah. yeah. I like how in the back she says, you don't get out much. That sounds like it. Well, we are beginning a study of the Gospel of John. And, you know, Curtis, Nick, and myself, we went through the book of Matthew, and we're going through that book verse by verse, trying to understand the overall theme of that book and make application of it. And um, in our leadership meeting, we're talking about the elders and stuff, talking about where do we want to go next with our adult Bible class. And I said, I'd like to teach another gospel. Uh, I, that sounds bad because Galatians says if anybody preaches another gospel. You know what I meant, okay? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all called the gospels. And, you know, Matthew and John are different. They both talk about Jesus, but they're polar opposites in how they approach his story. And this, during this pandemic time and quarantine and being stuck at home and things like that, I spent a lot of time reading, um, and I've been reading a lot of books about Jesus, and reading a lot of books about apologetics and teaching people about Jesus. And the point that just keeps getting reiterated in in everything I'm reading and also just the application of it is people need to hear more about Christ. The more we could talk about Jesus, the more we'll draw people to him. We get so distracted by everything else, but Jesus himself is such a compelling character that when you spend time learning about him, you just can't help but want to learn more. And more, and, and, and the more I learn about it, the more I see him, the more I, I'm motivated to live for him. As we went through the book of Matthew, and I saw how Jesus interacted with people and what he commanded, by the end of it, I'm like, man, I got to do all sorts of works for God. I'm going to go out there and teach people about him. It got me all pumped up. That's what the story of Jesus does. So what we're going to be doing for the next foreseeable future, I didn't give myself a endpoint in the class, and the elders didn't ask me to, so I guess this could be a two-year class or 13 weeks, wherever it works out. But uh, we're going to be going through, for several Sunday mornings, we're going to be going through the book of John. And what I want to do is kind of give us some introduction today to the book. I know that all of you have a familiarity with the New Testament somewhat and that idea. So uh, I might be talking about something that 
that you already know. We are also recording this, and it's going out as a podcast too, so we don't know, you know, the background of those that might be listening to it, so I might be dealing with subject matter that you would think, well, no, duh, I know that. Well, there might be people that are listening that don't know that, and we want to never assume that people have an understanding of something, you know, that might be a little bit confusing to some. And I'll be honest with you, even preaching the people that have been Christians their entire life, there's some that don't understand what maybe us as preachers would think are simple points that really aren't that simple. We've just heard it a lot. So as we look at the book of John, the book of John falls in the New Testament. The Bible is divided up into two parts. You got the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is a biography of the family of Abraham, predominantly. Now, it talks about some other things too, but the, for the most part, the Old Testament tells the story of the family of Abraham, which became the nation of Israel. And it's how God interacted with them because God had a plan that the Messiah was going to come through them and that they were going to be a light unto the world by how he interacted with them and so on. So the Old Testament tells their story. It also gives prophecies and predictions that in the future there's going to be a kingdom that all nations will be drawn to, kind of the idea of Jew and Gentile, um, Jewish or non-Jewish, and that they would all come and be one under this kingdom of this future king that's going to come in the lineage of David and so on, and that is Jesus. The New Testament, which I have the books up there on the screen, predominantly tell the story of Jesus, what he did while he was on this earth, and then what his followers did after he ascended to heaven, and letters of, from preachers to Christians, like churches, like us, encouraging them to keep following Jesus. That's basically what the New Testament is about. Now, if you look up there on the screen, the first four books of the New Testament are called Gospels. Now, we normally call them that. Um, the word gospel, anybody know what that means? Good news, okay? It means the idea of the good news. Now, that word gospel is used a lot in the Gospels. For example, you have John the Baptist bringing the gospel of the kingdom and that kind of idea. Um, but gospel means good news, and these good news stories are biographies of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all, you know, first-hand account historical biographies of people who were there with Jesus, which is totally awesome from a, uh, you know, a standpoint of trying to defend scripture and trying to understand the accuracy and authenticity of Jesus. You have eyewitness people, they're saying, hey, here's what I saw. And they interacted with each other. I, um, as you go on, I'm, John would have had a familiarity with Matthew, Mark, and Luke's writings too. That's probably why John's is a little bit different. Um, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels usually. You don't need to know that word, but if you ever come across it in your you know, Bible study, um, they refer to these three as the synoptics because they kind of follow a similar pattern, whereas John's gospel is completely different. They don't contradict, but John approaches it from a totally different standpoint. Now, you might be thinking, well, why is John so different? Does that mean it's not inspired? Does that mean it came around later? It was written later than the first three books of the New Testament, but it was, it's accurate, and it was around early on. In fact, our oldest um, a fragment of a biblical text that we have, okay? So archaeologists dig through things and find, you know, old scrolls and parchments and so on. The oldest remaining piece of the New Testament that we have is this piece right here. It's called the John Rylands Papyri. It's at John Rylands Library. Um, it's, they label every one of them if you want to be really nerdy. This one's labeled P52. I don't know what P51 or P53 is, but I'm sure you can look up online and see pictures of those two. P stands for papyrus. 
52 as this is the 52nd fragment papyrus for fragment, you know, that they have recorded. The John Rylands papyri, it's up there, that's Greek on there, and that's a fragment from John chapter 18. And really smart people who know Greek Bibles can fill in, you know, that line there and that line there and tell you where it's from, from, you know, the eight or so words that are on there. Um, but this papyrus fragment is from around the year AD 125, maybe all the way up to AD 175. But that means that a couple decades, because John, I believe, wrote his gospel around 90 AD, a couple decades after that, it was already being circulated around enough that fragments of it exist and things like that. So that's kind of cool with the Gospel of John. But the Gospel of John is a unique book compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And here's why. Number one, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all written, you know, a few decades after the time of Jesus, you know, like 40 through 60 AD, that kind of idea. Whereas John is written probably about 90 AD, okay? John, they say the Apostle John was probably born about um, you know, A.D. year six, and he died close to like 100 years old, and he wrote this most likely toward the end of his life, toward the end of the first century. And because of that, this makes this book kind of different because John is going to be writing to a different audience than Matthew, Mark, and Luke would have been writing to. This, by way of speculation, what do you think would have been different about the audience John would be writing to, you know, 50 years, 60 years after the time of Jesus versus Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are 20 years after the time of Jesus. Yeah, very good, yeah. So these people, for the most part, unless you're really, really, really old, right, these people probably had never seen Jesus before, which that's a totally different, you know, background there. Because whereas Matthew would say, hey, you know, um, Malchus, you know, the high priest, you've met him, right? He's down here working still by the temple. Um, he got his ear chopped off by Jesus. And be like, oh yeah, I know Malchus, I've seen the scar. You know, people could, they were around at that time. But John's writing the people that are generationally removed from it. That'd be kind of interesting. What else would be different about the audience? Yeah, I think the church would be different. Yeah, absolutely. Because early on, most of the converts to Christianity as the church began came out of where? Yeah, the Jewish background, right? Judaism. You had Jewish believers, right? People that came out of an Old Testament mindset and into following Jesus as the Messiah. Well, you fast forward 50 years from that or more, and now you have people that are Roman background, you know, Greek background, pagan backgrounds, a totally different approach to religion. You know, when we went through the book of Matthew, Matthew tries to prove that Jesus is the Messiah to the Jewish people. And what is the number one evidence that Matthew does? What would relate to a Jewish believer? Prophecy. But John doesn't really deal with that that much. See, to a Jewish Christian, oh, prophecy is great proof. To a former pagan worshiper of Zeus, what, what do you mean prophecy? Who's this Isaiah? Well, what's Jeremiah all about? They don't know that. It's different. So you would argue differently. You would present different, you know, you know um, ideas about the Messiah to prove to your audience, you know, that Jesus is the Son of God. So the audience will be different in that now the church makeup is different. Um, the people weren't eyewitnesses of Jesus. Um, They're from a different background, most likely. They weren't from the area around Palestine. They would have been up around the area around the Mediterranean. And that makes sense different. Because of that, the content 
of the Gospel of John is different. If you're telling a story to people, you have to read your audience. If I'm giving a lecture at a Christian university about the Gospel of John, I would spend a lot of time arguing about the authorship of John, discussing what is called the synoptic problem, and, you know, um, authenticity of the various texts and all of that kind of stuff because that's relevant to that audience. Zinni is teaching the kids in the fellowship hall right now. They're learning the story of Jesus too. They're watching a cartoon, okay? Different audience, different material. In a classroom like this, I got to take into account that we have people that have been Christians their whole life and people that are new to the church. So you deal with different, you know, content. John does that too. He's writing to a different audience, so his content is going to be more relating to unbelieving Jews, people that never followed Jesus. It's going to be relating to, you know, Greek-speaking people, and it's also going to be relating more toward Christians. Think about that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are probably more likely to make Christians is what their books are about, whereas John is writing to people that already are Christians, but they need to be encouraged a little bit more. You know, there's people sometimes that have been Christians for long, but their faith is lacking. That's where John comes in. Yes. Yeah, that attitude of love. And when you looked at the book of 1 John, the book of 1 John seems to be reiterating one point over and over again. You remember what it is? What is it? Yeah, love. And that you can trust and know that through that love that you're saved. He's writing to Christians who might be doubting. There's Christians that doubt all the time. That's why I'm doing lessons on Sunday morning on why we believe what we believe because sometimes we don't know why we believe what we believe or we don't even believe it. Well, John is writing to Christians that might be going, hold up here. Maybe Jesus wasn't God. Maybe he wasn't real. Maybe what my dad told me or my grandparents told me was just some kind of old-fashioned belief system. So picture that now. You are a Christian. You've been going to church now your whole life because there's people like that now. You've been, you know, you, that's what you do on Sunday. You get together at, oh, somebody's house and you're taking communion and you're hearing about what the apostles did and you're reading these letters from Paul and all of that. You're thinking, maybe it's not worth it. Maybe it doesn't make sense. My, you know, my friend who's studying at the feet of these great philosophers say that, oh, that can't be true. Or that my friend that's read these great works over here says, that, oh, no, no, Jesus wasn't real. And now you have a letter from John start to circulate around. And think about this. You would think, John's still alive, first off, which is pretty cool. You're like, I remember hearing about that guy way back when in Sunday school, if they had Sunday school, I know. Um, you know, I learned about this guy, John, who was with Jesus. He's still alive. I thought they kicked him out the Patmos. They did, but he came back later and settled and retired in Ephesus and actually didn't die a martyr. And he wrote before he died a couple books that we have, and now you're reading the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of John comes in to try to help you understand that Jesus is the Lord. And you might be wavering in your faith, you might be um, kind of weak in what you believe and what you understand or how to defend it, so John comes in to try to answer all those questions that you have about why. Why do we believe in Jesus? Why do we say that he is Lord? Why do we follow him? Why did he have to die? Why did he tell the disciples to go out there and preach the gospel? Why should I be faithful to him now? That's what the book of John is all about. It answers those difficult questions of why. And why is not a bad question. We ask that question all the time. 
And in fact, I encourage you, always ask why. Right now, though, however, Fiona's been asking why quite a bit at the house, which is becoming really frustrating when a five-year-old is always asking you why. We have to kind of break her of this a little bit because it's as she's getting in trouble. Why? Why am I in trouble? Because you didn't listen, so you're going to be punished. Why? Stop it. But John is answering the question of why right now for us. So questions or comments before we move forward a little bit? First time in the year you get to talk in a Bible class. Go. Yes. Yeah, I'll make it fit in for you. Yes, you're right. So we, the Bible answers every question that we need to have an answer to. Uh, it doesn't answer everything, of course, but the more we dig in, it gives direction and purpose and answers to those, some of those unanswerable thoughts that we have in our mind. Uh, so, you know, Yvonne's right. We need to dig into it and study it, and John helps us understand that why. Other thoughts before we go in a little bit more in the detail about this book. So author. Author of the book, first off, now there is debates a little bit, which I'll tell you every book of the Bible has debates about authorship because everybody thinks they have a better idea, okay? Um, I take the position that John the Apostle wrote this book. He's not named though in it, okay? Unlike other books where it'll say like, I, Paul, to the church in Corinth, right? It doesn't do that here. In fact, the author of this book seems to call himself this phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, maybe you think, well, that sounds kind of arrogant. I don't think it's meant to be that way. First off, um, er, the early church writers, for the most part, because you can read writings of people in the first, second, third, fourth century, Christians like us, and they wrote things back and forth too. Just like, you know, I have in my office bound volumes of Christian publications from the last hundred years. And I can go back and open up and read about what David Lipscomb wrote concerning you know, um, racial inequality during the late 1800s. I can read that. It's kind of cool because you can see about, you know, the controversies of the day and the different viewpoints and what people believed at that time. That we can read the writings of early Christian writers and see what they thought about things. They, for the most part, all attributed this book to John. They believed that John wrote it. Um, and that those guys would know more about that kind of stuff than we would because they were around, okay? Maybe they were there when Polycarp, John's disciple, delivered this letter to the churches up north and said, hey, John wrote this. They're like, oh, sweet, from John, okay? They would have been there. So they attributed this to John the apostle. Um, this phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, there's debates about why John would use this phrase. I believe, and other you know, agree with me, that what John is doing here is actually trying to be humble. Instead of naming himself, he gives this generic, you know, um, phrase of, you know, one who's loved by Jesus. I don't think he's saying I'm the only one loved by Jesus or exclusively that, but John did have a close relationship with Jesus. He was part of his inner circle. We're going to talk about more about him in a second. So for him to use that phrase is kind of a humble way for him to acknowledge who he was. Everybody knew that he was one of Jesus' best friends, and it's a way for him to not have to brag about it and put his name on something. I don't like putting my name on things a lot either because what happens is it inflates your ego a bit. Um, uh, we, you know, we post articles on the church's website, every bulletin article and all that. I've been labeling all of them from the West Visalia Church of Christ. I don't care if people know that it's me writing it. Um, and maybe that way you can't pin me down if you disagree with me too. But, um, but this way it's not the attention's not on me, it's on the work of the church. 
John is trying to put the emphasis not so much on him as an individual, I believe, here. Now, what do we know about John the Apostle? Let's ask some questions. What was his profession, you know, 80 years before, you know, writing this? What did he do? What was John's job before Jesus told him to come and follow him? Say it with confidence. Come on. Fisherman. Even if you don't know what it is, make something up. You, okay, and I'll tell you if you're wrong. But he was a fisherman. Remember the song? What was it? Peter, wait. Jesus called, I don't remember now. One of them says Fisherman of Capernaum in there, right? The disciple song. We'll have Beverly teach us it because I'm sure she knows it from teaching Sunday school. But um, so Jesus called some fishermen to follow him. One of them was the name of John, right? John had a brother too. Anybody remember who his brother was? James. Here's how you remember. We had an intern here named John who had a brother named James, okay? His mom named them both after the sons of Zebedee. Or that's so that James and John. Um, they also had kind of a nickname. You remember what their nickname was? Sons of Thunder. Why'd they call them that? <laughs> we guess arguing. I, have, I just imagine these are guys that are quick to get in fights. I don't know. I picture a bunch of rougher fishermen living on the docks and someone rubs them the wrong way. They're quick to throw an elbow. That, that's what I think. I could be completely wrong. I haven't looked up scholarly works on the phrase sons of thunder, but I'm thinking they could have probably been hot-headed. Um, but that's what their nickname was, Mark chapter 3, verse 16. We hear about them being called that. Um, I wonder if how long that stuck to, by the way. I mean, maybe John later on in life, someone goes, hey, I remember you. You're the son of thunder, dude. I've left that life. Just leave me alone, but I don't know. Um, James, John, and Peter, as we look at the life of Jesus, seem to be part of Jesus's inner circle. I don't mean that to insult the other disciples. That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't like them, but everybody has certain people that they're closer to. I mean, I, I'm friends with all of you, but I don't like text you random memes from the internet on a daily basis. There's a few close friends that I do that with. You know, um, it, we have our inner circles. Jesus had, you know, his own close people. Um, James, John, and Peter seem to be those ones. Yes. It's kind of out, uh, outspoken right, a little bit, right? Yeah, so it makes sense. Those guys would kind of become buddies and like each other. Yeah, it makes sense. I can see that. Um, then James, the one they called the less over there, poor him. I don't know why you get called the less. Um, but any other thoughts on this? Well, also when we look at the books of the Bible, John did write four other books of the Bible. Who can tell me what those four other books are? You already answered that one. First, second, and third, John, and Revelation. Not Revelations, only one, okay? Um, yeah, he wrote other books of the Bible, and they're all written toward the end of the first century, and they deal with subjects that are more relevant to those people at that time. Um, some other points about John, he was very close to Jesus. Um, he said to kind of recline next to him at during the Last Supper. Um, don't get weirded out by that. We're like, reclining? Why is he laying next to Jesus? Because people have come with some really weird positions on this. They all laid around mats on the ground when they ate. They didn't have tables. It's not that they couldn't have a table. That's just not wasn't the custom of the Eastern culture. They would lay down on their side, and, you know, you picture your Greek feast in that way. So, not the bash da Vinci, but the Last Supper painting is wrong. It's not historically accurate. And why are they all on one side of the table anyway? That wouldn't make sense. Um, number two, 
He remained on with Jesus through the crucifixion, and he was charged with taking care of Mary. So Jesus, my mom always likes bringing this up to me too, by the way, that look, even Jesus made sure his mother was taken care of. Um, but Jesus made sure that his mom was taken care of, and he commissioned John to watch after her, you know, when he died. Um, it's traditionally concluded that he died toward the end of the first century. When I say traditionally concluded, I'm not saying, well, it's like some tradition like, you know, the tooth fairy or something. No, it's, this is oral tradition, what people say, most likely true. We don't have any account of him like, you know, we have accounts of people being crucified in historical books and things like that. We have accounts in historical books about James being martyred. We don't have that about John. Uh, it, it's assumed that he died of old age. He was exiled. Um, Tertullian writes, and I don't know how true it, that is, that he was tried, they tried to boil him alive in oil. It didn't kill him, so they sent him off to Patmos to be exiled. We do know from the Bible that he did spend time on Patmos, and that's where the, um, the book of Revelation was revealed to him. So he's kind of kicked out of the country. Um, he later was allowed to come back. History records that he settled in Ephesus, and that's where he would have written, you know, this book and some others. Um, but historically, he most likely was probably the only disciple to not be martyred, to not be killed, you know, for his faith, which is a kind of a neat, you know, fact about him. Um, it's not saying that John did something to avoid death or anything like that. It's just the way that it worked out. If you're curious, by the way, there's a book that's free online now. You used to have to buy it, but because it's public domain, you can get it really like on PDF copies. Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can read about how early Christians were killed. It's interesting and morbid, but it's also sad, but you learn about what some of these early Christians went through, um, you know, to serve Jesus. Yes. Good. So you'll share with somebody. All right. So Yvonne's going to give you guys all a copy of it. Oh, any other comments? Well, with this, too, with um, the martyrdom of or these other disciples and John living longer, maybe God also had a hand in it so that John would be able to write this book to address people from a different audience. The audience that John is writing to is a lot more like us. They are second, third generation Christians. They're people that weren't there with Jesus. They're people that are having to hear about him second in hand. They're people that are living in more of a... Uh, a Western-type culture and being under the Roman Empire. And I think whereas the Jewish people, their background is very much Eastern in how they do things, as you get up into, you know, the Roman Empire, yes, there's influence in that, but it's a little bit different. The way they view things was very progressive at times. The way the debates that they had, the, the way they viewed things intellectually was different than the Jewish people. Well, so as we look at the Gospel of John, like I said, anytime we look at a book, we want to ask why it was written and we look for clues in the text to why the book was written, well, John tells us why he wrote his book, which makes it very easy for us as a biblical scholar, because we're all going to claim to be biblical scholars, okay? So as biblical scholars, we want to know why John wrote his book. Well, John tells us why. So instead of looking at an encyclopedia, instead of picking up a commentary or a Bible dictionary and asking why did John write his book, John tells us. So if there's one verse you need to underline, or two, actually, in the book of John, it's this one right here. You need to write, here's why John wrote. Purpose statement. John 20, 30, and 31. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is why John wrote this book. 
okay? Inspired by the Holy Spirit. Here's what John said. Here's the reason why I wrote it. If you were to summarize up that phrase right there, why did John write this book? So that we would believe. And by the way, that's what we're titling this class, That You May Believe. So you're always going to get that question right when we test you next week. Um, but yeah, John's gospel was written so that we may believe. But there's a lot of depth here too, and I want to break this down a little bit because I think this purpose statement tells us a lot about this gospel. This is his summation statement right here. This is it's all wrapped up. Number one, this purpose statement tells us that John was selective about what he wrote. Why do I say that? Okay, what, is, what does it say that lets us know that, that he's selective? Yeah, yeah, many other things happen, many other signs. I, I put a reference up there on the screen, chapter 21, verse 25. It says, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that it would be, that would be written. So in another passage, John alludes to the same idea. So John says, many other signs Jesus did, but these ones I have written down so that you might believe. Because John is selective in the miracles and signs, and not all signs are miracles, by the way, we'll talk about that later on. But why John is really selective in what he puts down shows that there's purpose behind it. He's intentionally leaving certain things out. Why would he leave certain things out? It's already been said, why else? Not as important, and, and I know you don't mean it like as, well, Jesus did things that are in, not important, but it's not as important to furthering John's purpose, right? I might leave out certain facts. If I'm talking about how to fix uh, a car, okay, maybe me and Owen were researching why his EGR valve code keeps popping up on his Suzuki, because it's a Suzuki, that's why. But um, anyway, we were researching how to fix this thing, and if I'm talking to my father-in-law, David, who was an automotive machinist for a very, very long time and knows how to work on stuff, I might say, you need to remove the intake manifold to access the EGR valve. He would know what I'm talking about. But if I'm talking to Owen, who's learning, but he's a little bit newer to stuff, I might say, hey, you're going to need to first remove the big plastic cover off the top of the engine. Then you need to get you a 10 millimeter wrench with an extension and a deep socket to reach them. And there's going to be 17 bolts that hold that giant aluminum armadillo looking thing on the top of your engine. And you're going to need to remove that, set it very gently off to the side. And then that thing in the back with all the hoses going to it, that's your EGR valve. Call me and I'll help you. Okay. Um, you know, I leave out certain things to further the purpose of the conversation. John is selective about what he writes down because he has an agenda. I don't mean that negatively, but he's trying to reach a certain people, he's trying to prove a certain point, and he's going to only emphasize certain things about Jesus. In a conversation with your spouse, husbands and wives emphasize something different. Even I notice this with my children. Um, the other day we were driving home from the gym and this Corvette pulled up next to us, and it's one of the new Corvettes, which are mid-engine, which are totally awesome, right? And what I did is I rolled down the window. Why do you roll down the window? So you can hear it, right, Tom? I want to hear it. Claire goes, ooh, I like the color. Oh, and, you know, the boys are like, that sounds like a Ferrari. Better than a Ferrari, kids. It's American muscle. But anyway, right? A different way of looking at it. We describe different things, furthering a different purpose. If I'm going to try to get Zinni to let me buy a Corvette, 
okay, which she wouldn't do and I wouldn't ask for because it's irresponsible. But anyway, I'm going to emphasize the things that Zinni would like about a Corvette, which I don't know what she would like about a Corvette, but I would try to describe it like a Honda Odyssey minivan, okay, is what I might do. Uh, you know, the maker want to buy it, whereas if I'm trying to convince my sons that I should buy it, I would just tell them how fast it is, okay? John is selective about what he wrote because he's trying to further a certain purpose to a certain audience. Number two, as we look at John's purpose statement, it lets us know that his entire presentation is centered around signs. If you look at that thesis statement in John 20, he mentions the signs that Jesus did. As we go through the book of John, I want you to notice signs because John says, here's my key word. Here's some textual markers for you. Here's something I want you to look back and notice. So John's presentation is centered around signs. Number three, these signs were recorded to bring about a specific purpose, you know, to get us to have faith in Jesus. So it's not just arbitrary. You know, some of the signs that we would want recorded are the ones that we just think are really interesting. John, on the other hand, says, I'm only going to record the signs that I think help you believe because the whole book is about belief. And this purpose statement from John lets us know that unless one has faith or belief, same Greek word, you will not have eternal life. The last part of that verse 31 says, in believing you may have life in his name. The purpose of this book is to get us to believe in Jesus because if you do not believe in Jesus, and I don't just mean a mental acknowledgement of his existence, but more than that, if you don't believe in Jesus, you will not have eternal life. That's the reason why this book is written. It's so that we can live. Now, as we look at this um, thesis statement, this key verse, um, I have this on the handout that was given out to you too at the bottom. I put that down there. By the way, that handout is an article written by one of my instructors, um, Dan Owen, that I thought was really good on summarizing the Gospel of John. And then at the bottom, I put the key verse. And this verse 31 I don't know if you can make out the different colors on the screen, but this verse introduces to us all the keywords of the book. I'm not going to look at other keywords. Now, there's other words that are repeated, but if the thesis statement of the book has these terms in it, these terms must be significant. And it is. Many other signs, signs is used 20 times in this book. Jesus, 244 times. Now, that's a no-brainer, so we won't spend much time on that one. Um, performed, 114 times. Disciples, 81 times. Written. 38 times, belief or believe or faith, 101 times that Jesus is God, 84 times life, 56 times name, 25 times. So as we go through the book, let me encourage you. I like to do this. I will put a legend at the front page of a book of the Bible, in my Bible, and I will put down the different key words, and I will underline them in different colors, and then I color coat my Bible. Uh, I don't do that with all the books because I retroactively had to fix some of the notes in my Bible, so it's kind of a mess. So if whenever whatever one of my kids inherits it when I die, they're going to be kind of confused, but it makes sense to me. But um, I like to color code things. I've gotten better with newer books, newer Bibles and Greek New Testaments and stuff. But you can list off your keywords at the beginning and highlight them in different colors. And then as you go through, it's like a word search. Totally fun, which, by the way, you want to get your kids involved in good exegetical Bible study? I would do this with Xander when he was um, squirming in church. I would go in my office and grab some cheap Bible that I have because I got a whole bunch of them, you know, leftover Bible camp ones and things like that. And I would say, here, look at the book of 1 John and underline belief every time. He's like, he likes word searches, okay? All of a sudden, he knows what the book of 1 John's about. And I have all my kids, he's the Bible scholar. 
So, I mean, keyword searches help you understand um, books of the Bible. Ultimately, though, in our class, we're not going to focus on all of these. We're going to focus on these three ones right there. I think these three words are the key to the entire book of John. Signs, believing, and life. And they, we're going to see how this lays out in this magnificent gospel. So although John's book might be the last one written, I also want to point out, too, that its subject matter is the earliest. And I think, what do you mean by that? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all begin primarily with what? Jesus' birth. What does the book of John begin with? Before the beginning, right? It begins with the beginning. John says, okay, you've already heard the story of Jesus. You know about his birth. You know about that stuff. I'm going to take you back even before. What a great attention getter. Think about this. Because especially if you're writing to a, a world in the later first century, that these are deep thinkers. You know, the more I'm reading, the more I see how smart some of these great philosophers and people were back in the day. You're like, how did they come up with this? Because they actually spent time thinking and not watching TV. And um, John says, I'm going to appeal to you. He goes, I'm going to take you back. And this is why, by the way, people think, oh, John couldn't have written this. The main argument against John writing this book is they say it's too deep. It sounds insulting. Really. They say, John's just a humble fisherman. He, there's no way he could be this philosophical. So even your skeptics acknowledge how deep this book is and how profound it is. Well, John's also older now, and he spent a lot of time thinking, being around some great minds, studying along with them, and he's got the Holy Spirit helping him, so he can be very, very deep. However, this book begins with prior to Jesus' existing, or as Jesus. The book of John discusses Jesus before he was Jesus. If you want to have a book that draws you in, think about that. So everybody's like, oh yeah, I know about Jesus. He was born in Bethlehem. Some people say he was born of a virgin, but we think his daddy was Joseph and they just knocked up Mary. I mean, that's probably the rumor, right? The John goes, uh-uh. I'm going to take you back before he even existed on this earth. I'm going to take you back to the pre-existence. You're like, what? And then he begins this book with this phrase. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was not. That's a profound statement. Now, we don't have time really to break that down today, so we're going to have to hit that next week. But think about how unique this is. You're, maybe you are a, a third-generation Christian now. It's the year 90 AD. You're starting to doubt whether or not Jesus exists. You don't really know much about him. All these philosophers are telling you all these other things. There's this weird um, Gnostic thinking that's out there that's drawing people in. There's some heresies that have crept into the church about the deity of Jesus or denying the deity of Christ. And then you get this letter or this book written by the aged John the Apostle who is actually there with Jesus. And you're thinking, oh, it's just going to be another book like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it begins with this. In the beginning, before everything was, there was the word. Now, in English, you're like, that, that seems weird. Is he talking about the Bible? Why is it capitalized? It's a Greek word, logos. And it could be translated word. It, it's really, it's bigger than that. One word doesn't really encompass this. It, it's the idea of reason, which, by the way, ancient Greek philosophers were really big into reason, right? Logic, thought. You look at their writings, 
It was all about how to think, how to comprehend, how to digest, how to understand, right? That's what it's all about. It's the search of knowledge. John says, in the beginning was reason, was thought, was mind, was the word. Now, we know that he's going to be talking about Jesus here in a second. But for John to describe Jesus pre-existing as the word, all of a sudden that would suck in the audience to want to know more. Tell me more about this. So you're saying reason, logic, thought pre-existed in the beginning, and it was with God and was God. Whether you are a Jew or a Greek believer or not, that's going to attract you to want to learn more. And that's why John begins his gospel that way, so that we might believe. We'll pick up in verse 1 next week, but any questions or comments? Yes. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, Mark was a young guy too. He wasn't one of the 12, but I, I don't know. We don't know when all these guys were born, though. That's kind of the issue. You know what I mean? Um, but so I don't know. It could be if he was born around 6 AD, like they say, that would make him younger than some of the other guys. Other thoughts? It sounds like something's true. I'm going to, well, what, two or three agree. Beverly, do you agree? Okay, good. It must be true. I'm just kidding. Don't approach biblical scholarship that way. But okay, but I'm joking. Other thoughts? Questions? So your homework assignment, read chapter one of the book of John and just spend time thinking about it. Um, it's, it's a magnificent uh, book and the way it comes together. It is so abstract and yet it's so simple. And when you go through John, you see all these comparisons, light versus darkness, you know, new versus old. You know, those, those ideas, that would draw in the mind at that time. People are like, that's compelling. I want to learn more. And I, I have an article that I actually, this morning, I wrote on my desk on a scrap of paper, paradox, because it's to compel, it's to remind me when I get home to talk about the paradoxes of Christianity, because there is. There's all these like, to die, to live, you must die. John talks a lot about that. You know, uh, to find light, you must get, uh, move from darkness. See, all these kind of weird paradoxes that are there. The gospel of John talks about it. Look for those as you go through it and look about how it describes Jesus and his preexistence and start underlining those key words. We'll close with a prayer. We'll have about a 15-minute break. I know we're not doing the normal, hey, everybody hang out in the foyer and all that kind of stuff because of uh, trying to keep some social distancing, but please visit with one another. Um, greet each other the best way you can, and the kids will start coming back in here, and we'll have our worship time at 1030. Let's pray. Our wonderful God, Father in heaven, thank you for allowing us to study the book of John this morning. We pray that it motivates us to greater levels of faith so that we can have life in Jesus Christ. Um, thank you for this opportunity to study. Thank you for those that are here. Um, please bless us as a church. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to West Visaya Audio. We hope these messages have helped you grow and inspired you to take action. Be sure to check in each week for more on-the-go content or visit our YouTube channel to watch the live video. Thanks for participating and God bless. Thank you.